Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 25.5. Wait, what? We're calling it that? Well, we could. What about bonus episode number one? Either or. The point is that we had so many suggestions for movies to review that we decided to add one more episode to our all-request month of January. And this one is a doozy. Yeah, it sure is. This time around, we're looking at the 1940 classic, Rebecca. The best picture winner, Rebecca. Our first Hitchcock film. There will be more. Our first Laurence Olivier film. There will be more. And our first bonus episode. And this request comes to us from Ashley, so thanks for being cool, Ashley, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, with this being a bonus, we probably won't be going quite as in-depth as we normally might. No. This is a bonus after all. It is. But considering we have some big names to talk about and a Best Picture winner to discuss, I feel like we might easily get carried away. The intent is to be a bit more brief than usual. But... But... So, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And thanks for checking us out on the socials. Pretty much just search I Love Old Movies, the podcast, anywhere, and you will find us. Likes, subscribes, shares, stars, ratings, all that good stuff. Please help us out. Hey, we'd do it for you. So we'd better get on with it. It's a long drive to Manderley by motorcar, and we want to get there before the big costume ball. The director of Rebecca is Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock was an incredibly well-known filmmaker who is probably one of the most influential figures in the history of cinema. Hitchcock first joined the film industry in 1920 by drawing the sets for productions. And after the director of Always Tell Your Wife in 1923 got sick, Hitchcock was called in to finish the film. The the first entire film that he directed was called Number 13, and that came out the same year. But the studio closed, so the production was never completed. His first trademark film was The Lodger, which he directed in 1927. Hitchcock later moved to Hollywood in 1940, where he was quickly hired to work on Rebecca. And as his fame and notability steadily grew after his work on Saboteur, Hitchcock became so highly thought of that film companies started calling films his, such as Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. He had a career spanning six decades and directed over 50 feature films. He was awarded 31 different prizes for his work on various films and was nominated for an additional 43. Hitchcock was also awarded the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award in 1979, and he was knighted later that year. He died in 1980 at the age of 80, leaving behind an incomparable body of work. The novel this film is based on was written by Daphne du Maurier, but the screenwriter is Robert E. Sherwood. Sherwood began writing as a movie critic for magazines. This continued through the 20s until he wrote his first Broadway play, The Road to Rome, in 1927, successfully kickstarting his primarily theater-based writing career. He even became president of the Dramatists Guild of America and actively advocated for writers' rights. He did, however, write the screenplays for numerous films, including adaptations for a few of his own plays. Unfortunately, some of his contributions wound up being uncredited. One of the films he is most known for is Rebecca in 1940. Sherwood also served as a speechwriter for President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He 
He even wrote a book about this experience and won a Pulitzer Prize for it in 1949. Sherwood eventually returned to dramatic writing with The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, earning Sherwood an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. He died in 1955 at the age of 59. In our last episode, we discussed two of the heavyweight actors of the old Hollywood era, Spencer Tracy and Frederick March, and we basically summed them up as peerless, perhaps only being matched by each other. And that wasn't quite fair, since no discussion of the great actors of screen and stage is complete without mentioning Laurence Olivier. Already an acclaimed stage actor in England, having gained fame for a series of performances in Shakespearean and modern classics, Laurence Olivier was tempted to Hollywood by a performer's contract with RKO in 1930. After making a few films for both them and Fox, none of which gained much traction, Olivier moved between London and Hollywood, picking up stage and screen roles as opportunities arose. By the mid-1930s, he had joined the Old Vic Company, performing lead roles in Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet on stage, and he met young actress Vivian Lee, whom he fell in love with, forming a 1930s version of an entertainment power couple. In 1939, the couple relocated to America, Lee being cast as Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, and Olivier starring in his breakthrough screen performance as Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. Now, he got an Oscar nomination for that, right? He did. And it's funny, as it took a major turn in his style of film acting for that to happen. William Wyler, who directed the film, really tried to steer Olivier away from the grand theatricality of his stage style and into a more realistic, relatable performing style. And the results were fantastic. Having truly found himself on screen now, Olivier next appeared in Rebecca and again received great acclaim. He had wanted Lee to appear in that film with him, but David O. Selznick felt Joan Fontaine was more appropriate for the role. Olivier and Lee worked together on stage and screen many times, though, before her eventual bout with mental illness and the ending of their relationship in the mid-1950s. Over the course of his career, Olivier had nine Academy Award nominations as an actor, winning once for Hamlet. He also won an honorary Oscar as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award. His run of excellence went from the late 1930s all the way into the late 70s, with roles in films like The Boys from Brazil and Marathon Man. Never one to shy away from a paycheck, though, Olivier took roles in many awful films, simply for the money, either to support his family or to fund his own projects. Roles as Neil Diamond's father in The Jazz Singer or as Zeus in Clash of the Titans are probably ones he might like a do-over on. Hey, don't blame the money. It's not the money's fault. It never is. A legendary career on film and stage received an unexpected coda when archival footage of Olivier was used to create the role of Dr. Totenkopf in Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow in 2004. This was 16 years after his death in 1989, at the age of 82. To merely describe Joan Fontaine as Olivia de Havilland's little sister would be doing her a disservice for two reasons. One, both women enjoyed equally legendary careers in old Hollywood, and two, these sisters had a deep rift between them that lasted decades, and in fact, that they took to their graves. Born in Japan like her sister, Joan followed Olivia to Hollywood in the 1930s, making a string of unremarkable films for MGM and RKO. So poorly received were most of her pictures that while her sister was appearing in Gone with the Wind, Joan began to consider retirement. It was a chance meeting with producer David O. Selznick that led her to being screen-tested for an upcoming production of Rebecca. 
She got the part, and her career instantly turned around. Both sisters were nominated for Best Actress in 1941. Ginger Rogers won. But Jones stayed with Selznick and worked with Hitchcock again the following year in Suspicion. She won the Best Actress Oscar for that film, becoming the only actor to win an Oscar in a Hitchcock film. Joan nailed a third Best Actress nomination two years later for The Constant Nymph, a film she would later describe as her favorite. That is quite a run. She owned the early 40s. The 1950s saw far fewer hits on her resume, and by the mid-60s, her film career was essentially over. She was mostly doing television work by then, appearing on shows and guest spots and making the odd TV movie. That was really the end game for so many actors from that era. By the 1970s, her feud with her sister and her estrangement from her adopted daughter were more newsworthy items than anything she was doing as a performer, and the 1980s saw her perform very infrequently, her career ending in 1986 on the miniseries Crossings. Joan Fontaine died of natural causes in 2013 at the age of 96. Based on the celebrated novel by Daphne du Maurier, the first film adaptation for Rebecca was notable for its high quality and successfulness. An instant hit with audiences and critics alike, Rebecca was the first American film for Alfred Hitchcock, and to say he set a pretty high bar for himself is more than fair. In fact, although in the past decade or so, Vertigo has achieved lofty status along the likes of Casablanca and Citizen Kane in the conversation for best movie ever, Hitchcock may not have made a more celebrated film in his catalog than Rebecca. An attempt to recreate the novel as faithfully as possible, a few changes were required, both for the sake of brevity and to be compliant with the Hollywood production code. And while Hitchcock and producer David O. Selznick didn't exactly get along, it's hard to argue with the end result. The film was a bit of a troubled production all around, in fact. Well, you had Selznick banning Hitchcock from script meetings and Hitchcock banning Selznick from the set. There was that. I mean, they fought about more than that, but for sure. You had overruns, both in terms of budget and time. For a film that was five days behind schedule, only two weeks into production, it only got worse from there. Yeah, fair to say. You had Laurence Olivier being all pissy because Vivian Lee wasn't cast, and subsequently treating Joan Fontaine horribly. So horribly. All the horribly. In fact, Hitchcock noticed how shaken this was making Fontaine, and he decided to exploit it by telling her that a lot more people on set than just Olivier flat out hated her. He wanted to really capture her unease on film, and he felt a good way to do that was to feed her own sense of insecurity and paranoia. Creating a toxic work environment. Yep. How delightful. You know, I'm shocked at how often and how casually people treated each other like crap back in the old Hollywood. I mean, it's not exclusively an old Hollywood problem for sure. No. But still, stories like this. Yeah, I know, right? Imagine him whispering in her ear, By the way, everyone hates you. And then calling for action on a scene. I bet it happened just like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's the mental image I have of it anyway. <laughs> but despite it all, an incredible film was the result. One that was not only a hit then, but has unquestionably stood the test of time. And if you enjoy our podcast on YouTube, one of the stills in our opening sequence is from this film. And reviewers loved it, right? Well, Fre Frank Nugent of the New York Times called it an altogether brilliant film. 
Variety called it an artistic success, and Film Daily wrote, Here is a picture that has the mark of quality in every department, production, direction, acting, writing, and photography. And yet, ironically, despite its high quality, this is the only film since 1936 to win the Best Picture Oscar and not win another Oscar for either acting, directing, or writing. Huh. So figure that out. Yeah. So, what's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have an 8.1 on IMDb. Yeah. The audience score is 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Sure. And the tomato meter is 100%. The film won Oscars for Best Picture and Best Cinematography in Black and White and was nominated for seven other Oscars. And you can watch it on YouTube. For free. We open on multiple cards with names listed before we see a tree, an orchard in mist, and we get the credits rolling over top of this. We hear a long voiceover framing the tale as a memory story as the camera pans across the vista of the vast ruins of a decrepit manor. In the south of France, a man stands upon a cliff and seems like he will jump. A woman yells for him to stop. And this is the first meeting between the girl and Maxim de Winter. We next see them at a fancy Monte Carlo party at a hotel resort. The girl is a paid companion to Miss Edith Van Hopper, a wealthy American. She tries to set Max up with the girl, but he shoots this down. The next day at a restaurant, De Winter and the girl meet up again and decide to dine together. They talk about their lives and get acquainted. She has no family, which seems like a pretty important point. Hmm. No support network, eh? No one to go looking for you. Eh? No annoying future mother-in-law. Eh? Match made in heaven. They drive off so she can do some drawing. He takes her and she sketches him. And in general, he is aloof and kind of cold. A very distant kind of guy, one might say. Well, he's a broken man. His wife, Rebecca, died. And he doesn't seem over it. But we see days and days of courtship. She's an increasingly smitten schoolgirl, and he's always so distant and stern. Ah, love. He finally shares his name, George Maxim de Winter. This is like their 10th date. It's not a comfortable courtship, but it is a courtship. The next day, Mrs. Van Hopper finds out about her daughter getting married, and she wants to return to America immediately. And the girl is stuck. She's desperate to connect with de Winter, so she goes to his room and explains the problem. And he says, well, you either need to go to New York or you need to marry him. She doesn't believe that she fits into his world, but she confesses her love to him. Wait, 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 wait. How long have they known each other? Like a few days. Oh, of course. A few days. She accepts his proposal and right away he is like, pour my coffee and get the sugar and cream right. <laughs> Not so aloof now, is he? Maxim summons Van Hopper and tells her he is keeping the girl. She's very happy for them both. She even wants to help plan their wedding. But that's all for show. Left alone with the girl, she resumes her bitchiness, saying, You haven't the faintest idea what it means to be a great lady. I thought back in the 1940s you had to court people. Are you still on this? They went on a few dates. They leave Monte Carlo and return to De Winter's estate, Manderley. The manor is filled with a large staff of very stern-looking servants. The maid in particular hates the new Mrs. De Winter, 
Her name is Mrs. Danvers. You know, no one seems very concerned that he went off on vacation and just returned with a wife. Maxim is much more doting and charming now that they're at home. But adjusting to a life of such luxury takes some doing for her. And the news that judgmental in-laws are coming for lunch leaves her a bit nervous. The servants want to do everything for her. Open doors, hand her things. It's all too much, and she's clearly not into it. And then she finds Rebecca's diary. She seems to have some expectation of having to write letters, but she has no idea to who or why. She's unnerved, and she doesn't fit into this life. And when Maxim's sister arrives, she hears them refer to her as an ex-chorus girl. Beatrice, Maxim's sister, explains that Mrs. Danvers adored Rebecca, and that it will take a long time for her to warm up. She's so bitchy. She says things like, change your hair. I can tell you don't care about how you look. It's just, it's so backhanded and mean, but she does it cheerful. And after Beatrice and her husband leave, the De Winters take a walk across the grounds. She's curious. He's kind of mysterious. Hey, what's that over there? Oh, we can't go look over there. That kind of thing. And she comes to the door of a weird house by the shore. And inside, there's a weird man. He says that Rebecca went into the ocean. And that's why Maxim hates the shore so much. When she gets back, Maxim is really pissed off. He demands she never returns to that stone cottage. He says he should never have returned home. Max was traumatized by his wife's death, and she knows that everyone is comparing her to Rebecca. She's an outsider, and she lacks the beauty and wit and intelligence of Rebecca. But she's kind and sincere and modest, and she wants to know what Rebecca was really like. And she's told that Rebecca was the most beautiful creature I ever saw. By Crawley. Well, how does one live up to that? Easy. She wears a gorgeous and daring gown and new hair to impress Maxim. He finds it's not really her. And she's embarrassed. Oof. Danvers accused Robert of stealing a little treasure from the morning room. But it was a thing that the new Mrs. De Winter had broken and hid. She comes clean, and she's so intimidated. She feels maybe she was married since she had no gossip about her. But gossip is a trigger word for Maxim. He realizes he isn't much of a companion for her. She says she's happy. She says they are happy. But he doesn't exactly agree with that. It's sad. She loves him so much, and every interaction they have is painful. And she's so lonely and miserable. When Max is away in London, she meets Mr. Favell. He seems like he's going to be trouble. He has some scheme going on with Danvers, and he asks uh, Ms. De Winter not to mention his visit to Max. He was Rebecca's favorite cousin, don't you know? She sneaks around the house looking for something, and Danvers catches her in Rebecca's room. So Danvers gives her the tour. Everything is kept just as Rebecca liked it shows her the furs and the underwear. Everyone loved Rebecca, Danvers explains. Everyone who mattered. Danvers keeps this room like a shrine. The girl is horrified. It's all just a bit too creepy for her. Danvers says she feels Rebecca, sees her everywhere. Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? She thinks Rebecca watches the DeWinters. That was so uncomfortable. 
Later, the girl calls Danvers and tells her to dump a bunch of stuff. She says, these are Mrs. DeWinter's things. And the girl replies, no, I am Mrs. DeWinter now. Max arrives and she suggests a costume ball to show everyone that Mandalay is just what it used to be. He seems dubious, but she spends days planning the party and especially her costume. She sketches and sketches and sketches. Danvers suggests checking the portraits of ancestors to get inspiration. And on party night, everyone comes. And the new Mrs. De Winter has dressed as the woman in the portrait. And she makes a grand entrance down the staircase, all smiles. But Maxim freaks out and screams at her to put something else on. Beatrice even calls her Rebecca when she sees her in the dress. She goes to Danvers. It's the dress that Rebecca wore to the last party. Danvers said she will never be Mrs. DeWinter. No one can beat Rebecca. And Danvers says to her, why don't you go? He doesn't love you. He has his memories. Danvers even cajoles her to jump out the window. Go on. Go on. But then a ship runs onto the rocks and fires rockets and everyone rushes to the shore to help. The girl goes looking for Maxim. Crawley tells her that the ship has crashed into a shipwreck that was under the water. Rebecca's ship. She goes to the stone cottage and finds Maxim. He tells her that the body that washed up on shore and was buried wasn't Rebecca. Rebecca's body is in the ship. Max knows this because he put her body there. And she almost throws up at this reveal. But she recovers and professes her love. She explains that she knows he has always compared her to Rebecca, that he loves Rebecca. But he says no. He hated her. Sure, everyone was enchanted by her. She had breeding and brains and beauty. But she was an awful person, incapable of love or tenderness or decency. And he never loved her. Max and Rebecca had made a bargain to pretend, to uphold family honor. The marriage was a fraud. But he went with it. He planned on having it out with Rebecca and Favel. She discussed having a child. Maybe not Max's. And that child would have everything one day. Max struck her. She fell and struck her head on an anchor. Dead. So he carried her to the boat, sailed it out, and sank it before taking the dinghy back. Now, she wants to help him through this. But he's known all along that Rebecca would win. Now the boat is found, the body will be found, and will be identified. Max is summoned to the medical office to identify the newly found body. The story is, he made a mistake. Everyone seems to buy that. But there will have to be an inquest. At the inquest, sure enough, a boat guy offers testimony that, in his opinion, the boat was scuttled. Holes that look made from the inside. And she was too good a sailor for this to happen accidentally. But it is entirely rejected that Rebecca would commit suicide. Max has to testify. He's asked if they were happy. He refuses to answer and his wife faints, causing a recess. She's taken to a car and Favelle comforts her. He has a note from Rebecca. It shows that she had no intention of committing suicide. He is setting up a blackmail scheme so Max will fund his immediate retirement in exchange for his silence. But Max brings a police chief to explain the blackmail. Favelle gives him the note, and Favelle brings in Danvers to provide the motive. Rebecca and Favelle were in love. 
and Danvers provides the name and address of the doctor Rebecca saw on the last day of her life. So they go and see this Dr. Baker. Why is this a portable trial? This doesn't seem to be how inquests work. No. And it turns out Rebecca had cancer. And it was inoperable. He told her it would be a matter of months. No, doctor, not that long, Rebecca replied. Pavel is shaken by this reveal. And Max feels that Rebecca tried to trick him into killing her. Pavel tells Danvers about the cancer, and Danvers comes to kill the new Mrs. De Winter, while Maxim and Crawley race back to Manderley. When the men arrive, Manderley is aflame, but everyone is out, and safe. Danvers told her she'd rather see Manderley destroyed than see them happy. The house burns to the ground, with Rebecca's belongings and Danvers consumed in flame. Wow. That really had me hooked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it started kind of slow and felt like it was going in circles at the beginning, but it was great after that. Yeah, super good film. Pros and cons, then. Take it away. My pros. Number one, the cinematography. This is a movie filled with creative shots, effective use of camera movement, and exquisite photography of very impressive sets. I'm a big fan of films where the setting can almost be a character, and the way Manderley is filmed, almost lovingly, and revealed with dramatic flourishes of light and perspective, lends it a special quality. The film becomes very different when the action is set in the house. It's better filmed, better lit, and more filled with a sense of impending doom and endless tension. Hitchcock does so many things right as a director, but his ability to make this film so visually interesting is a major plus. Number two, endlessly quirky supporting characters. From the overbearing Edith Van Hopper to the loathsome Favelle, to the intimidating Danvers, to the blunt Beatrice and her jolly husband, to the earnest Colonel. Rebecca is filled to the brim with a large supporting cast, each of whom seem fully defined and drawn in detail. They give the De Winters so much to play off that every scene is rich and filled with detail. Number three, George Saunders. I don't know if there is an actor in film history as adept at showing up in the middle of a film, blowing everyone off screen, and then disappearing as the mighty George Saunders. An incomparable screen presence, so magnificent at portraying amoral rapscallions, Sanders is literally incapable of detracting from a scene he's in. Once he is on screen, Rebecca becomes his movie, and watching him effortlessly steal scenes from Laurence Olivier is a treat. My cons. Laurence Olivier is Maxim de Winter. I probably shouldn't take too many shots here at one of the greatest actors in history, but I feel that while his performance in Rebecca was fine, good even, it didn't wow me. Perhaps it was the limitation of the character, but in a film with so many very strong performances, for his not to be one of them seems a bit of a letdown. I would recommend this film for many reasons, but his performance is not one of them. Two, the length. This is a very long film, and feels decompressed in places. Obviously, some of this is due to the challenges of adapting a novel, but I feel that more judicious cuts could have been made. Far too much time was spent in Monte Carlo just to get us to the point of Max meeting the girl who would be his new wife. The movie could just as easily start with the newlyweds driving to Manderley, and it would have been tighter and better for it. 3. 
With the inquest scenes, it felt like there was an attempt to segue into a bit of a courtroom drama, but the script doesn't commit to it. And most of the interesting testimonies and reveals happen outside of the makeshift courtroom. First in the De Winter's car, then in the hotel meeting room, and finally at the doctor's office. Why are all these places used for testimony and investigation? Why not just commit to the idea of the inquest and do it all there? The traveling roadshow pseudo-court isn't an enjoyable way to get to this information about Rebecca's illness, when better ways were available. Overall, though, this is a watch. The performances are great, and it's a very good-looking film, and the twists and turns will keep you engaged to the end. This is one of Hitchcock's better films, and he's a director you should be watching films by just on principle. Definitely check this one out. All right. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One. The opening shot. It was just this cool shot that moved the camera through this big old gate to a path with trees, then stopping by the scraggly tree to look up at some gloomy manor. The camera eventually then zoomed in on the manor slowly during the voiceover. I just really liked this shot because it was so dark and gloomy, and that totally emphasized all the angles and shadowy areas along the path in the manor itself. Plus, it was one continuous shot which I'm a total sucker for. Two, Beatrice. She didn't have a lot of screen time, which I was kind of sad about, but I really enjoyed her when she was there. She was just a really funny and snarky character. And she had some absolutely great lines. Like when she told her husband, you're very much in the way, go somewhere else. <laughs> it was awesome, and I would have liked to see more of that sort of thing throughout the film, instead of just those few scenes with her visit. 3. The Twists and Turns I wasn't too sure early on in the film, but once things got going, they got going. There's a reason Hitchcock is referred to as the master of suspense. Every time I watch one of his films, I end up on the edge of my seat, holding my breath, and clutching a pillow to my chest for dear life. This film was no different, and I felt like I was imploding with questions and guesses for a solid hour. It, Hitchcock just has that way of making little things become super captivating to hook you right into the story and keep you guessing at what's really going on. You can definitely tell it's one of his films, and I absolutely loved it. My cons. 1. The beginning of the film. It was so slow. It was at least half an hour before the De Winters even got back to the manor. And none of it really furthered the plot along. Like, Mrs. Van Hopper? Completely unnecessary character. And we never see her again after we get to the manor. So why have her at all? The film would have been fine had it just cut out that first part of the film. 2. The De Winters getting married. This happened really quickly, and I feel like all the interactions we saw between the two of them were really awkward. Yet they somehow fell in love? Like, seriously, them just deciding to get married was ridiculous, and the scene afterwards was unbelievable. They met four days ago, decided to get married, she said, I love you, and he said, that's great, now pour my coffee. Just wow. I get it was a different time back then, but there's no way people just did that. Their love just wasn't convincing, 
and I ended up not being invested in their relationship for the rest of the movie. 3. The Timeline I felt like I never knew when anything was happening. Early on, I'm pretty sure things were taking place over a few days, but later on it felt like more time had passed. How long was it exactly before they hosted that party? A few weeks? Months? There was no clear indication, and it left me confused at times. It was really slow at first, but then shit hits the fan and it gets crazy. Definitely worth a watch. And there we have it. Bonus episode done. All requests January done. I just want to say, five episodes in four weeks, spanning both an online learning period and my end of quadmaster work in bio and math, this was a bit of a killer. You are a trooper, kid. With great podcasts comes great responsibility. So true. You did great. And now on to another quadmaster. That'll be good, right? I have calculus and chemistry. Yeah, should be a walk in the park. I think the microphones actually picked up your eye roll there. <laughs> I hope so. We hope you enjoyed these special episodes. And even though January is over, don't feel you can't keep sending us requests. Do keep sending us requests. We love to get them, and we try to do them when we can. Next month, it's February. So in honor of Valentine's Day and all things lovey-dovey. And kissy-wissy. And hanky-panky. We'll be looking at romance films. And we've got some really good ones lined up. That's a fact. So we will see you next week for that. And until then, watch more movies. And spread the word about our show. We love new listeners, and we always want to reach more, and you can help out with that. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like living in the shadow of a rich guy's dead wife as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.